Our Lord Jesus, the church is your creation, your great building project. With your own blood, you bought her, and for her life, you died. Help us to see it, to think about the church, to love it, to relate to it the way you call us to. Teach us today and transform us. Where strength is needed, give it. Where encouragement is needed, impart it. Where humbling and repentance are needed, grant that also. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, it might not hurt us to ask ourselves, how biblical are we? Well, it's in the name, Copperfield Bible Church. So us as members and attenders, how biblical are we? We don't need anyone to tell us what a mess the world is in today. We don't need anyone to tell us what a mess the evangelical world is in today. It seems like there's no doctrine that isn't under attack from one direction or another. And so as we look at ourselves, we might feel that we're very biblical indeed. I mean, deity of Christ, check. Uh, Bodily resurrection and ascension, check. Bodily return of Christ to reign on earth one day, check. Gift of the Holy Spirit to all believers, check. Uh, Regeneration by the grace of God, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, check, 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 and check. Uh, Inspiration and and inerrancy of the Bible, check. Sufficiency of the Bible, check. We go down a a long list in all of these things. Well, it turns out we are very biblical after all. But often there's one area that is a major area of biblical teaching that is left off of that list. And I have known this person and met this person often. A person who regards him as a great warrior of the faith. He sees himself as very faithful and very strong and very mighty. He's just not much about the doctrine of the church. The church is just not central to him. It's just not important to him. Attendance, membership are optional at best. He's fine if he can just listen to a sermon occasionally or maybe read a book, maybe go to YouTube or get some MP3s to listen to as he's jogging. Uh, He's fine being a spectator or an onlooker. And not just fine, but excellent. He feels really good about his biblical fidelity. There's just that one area that's all over the New Testament and in concept is all over the Bible he's just not into. It just doesn't hold much attraction to him. Uh, Is all that interpersonal stuff really necessary? All that relationship stuff. I had one of these people attend a church I pastored briefly, and he finally left. Uh, He came, I think, because he heard I taught from Greek and Hebrew texts, and he wanted to hear some Bible teaching. But he left after a while telling me he was tired of hearing about all that ooey-gooey love stuff. His words. Well, the problem with that is, if you're going to be biblically faithful, that ooey-gooey love stuff, it's all over the place. And the doctrine of the church is right at the center of the teaching of the New Testament. In fact, all of the letters of the New Testament are written to, hello, churches or pastors of churches. The book of Revelation with all of the special effects and explosions and everything, what does it start with? Seven letters to seven churches. So what, I'm, what I've tried to show you many times, and I've, I'll try again to show you today uh, from another angle, is that I can be ramrod straight about every other biblical doctrine, but if I don't see church the way that Christ sees the church, I'm not biblically faithful in the eyes of God. I'm not right down the list as far as he's concerned. So uh, being faithful on Christ and the gospel, but faithless on the church Christ died to create is not being faithful to God. So I want to look at this section in Matthew 18 from another angle. Uh, Again, it's a section, as I say, people think of as being the steps of church discipline. And to many people, it's a list of things you do, uh, almost like a (laughs) flowchart. If this happens, then do this. But if this happens, do that. And then do this, and then do this. And it ends up with booting somebody out. And I think that if we understand it the way that Jesus meant it, I'm confident that if we understand it the way that Jesus meant it, 
we are going to see it from a different perspective, and we'll see the function of what we think of as steps differently. So I want to make sure we do that before we look more closely at those steps. So first of all, Roman numeral one, laying the foundation of understanding this correctly, we need to understand Jesus' twofold concern that we see coming up in different ways throughout this chapter. Jesus' twofold concern, beginning with the big picture. The big picture was back in verses 6 and 7. Remember, the disciples have wanted to know who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus starts by saying, look, if you're not converted, if you don't turn around, if you don't become like this little child humbling yourself, you're not even entering the kingdom of God, let alone being great in the kingdom of God. And then in verses 6 and 7, He says, but whoever trips up one of these small ones who believe in me. That's his name for disciples, as we saw when we studied that verse. He calls us small ones. Small ones who believe in him. The Greek word mikroi. So we're micro. (laughs) We're micro ones who believe in him. Whoever trips up one of these small ones who believe in me, it is to his advantage that a donkey millstone be hung around his neck, and he be sunk in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of trip sticks. For it is a necessity for trip sticks to come. Nevertheless, woe to the man through whom the trip stick comes. So, first we see a warning to the sources of spiritual harm. Whoever trips up one of these small ones who believe in me, better for him to be drowned in the sea. So, a trip stick, I remind you, is the stick that trips a trap. It's like the, the, the tongue on a mouse trap that uh, when the prey jostles that, well, he's trapped. And so obviously this is somebody who is trapped into spiritual harm. That's the picture Jesus is painting here. And he's fearsomely directing our attention to the person who's the source of this spiritual harm, the person through whom trip sticks come to bring harm to one of these little ones, and therefore vulnerable ones, who believe in him. So this puts the picture on the large frame. It it causes our mind to think about the whole body of believers in Jesus and of whoever brings trip sticks, harm, stumbling into their lives. It it causes me to think of others, of the danger to others, and myself only insofar as saying, I don't want to be the source of that. Because as I say, there's a fearsome warning of the judgment of God to the person who is a source of these dangers, these harms to others. But Jesus starts me off thinking about these others and about no harm coming to these others. And and my role is being sure not to be the source of harm to all of these. And and being the one through whom they come reminds me, well, I, I can be that one intentionally or unintentionally, actively or passively. It may be that I'm out setting out to cause harm, or it may be that that's not my intention, but that's the effect. What I'm doing actually does bring harm to other people. Either way, he says, better not to, better to have a, a stone thrown tied around your neck and cast into the depths of the sea. God will fearsomely judge the person who's the source of harm to these little ones. But I, I want to remind you something before we leave this point. In the Bible... Negative commands imply positive commands. Do you know what I mean? When you hear the command, do not steal, and you understand what it means to steal and see you're being directed not to do that, are you done understanding what God is teaching? No. The command not to steal carries with it the command to work profitably so that you can generously give to others as well as providing for your family. Do you see? And so the command, do not kill, includes with it a command to foster life and what is, uh, what is for life and the enjoyment of a godly life, and so on through all the negative commands. And so here, this command not to be the source of spiritual harm carries with it a positive command. What would that be? To be a source of spiritual good and blessing and help. He makes me care. He makes me responsible for the spiritual health of others. Not just myself, but the others of whose body I am a member, of which I am a part. Not only not to be the source of harm to them, but in fact to be the source of good and of blessing, of care and protection to them. I have a role in their lives, Jesus says. That's the big picture. Now let's look at the small picture in verses 8 and 9. He turns from thinking about the whole body of disciples 
and not being a source of harm to them. And then he turns, uh, he picks up a mirror, as it were, in the small picture of verses 8 and 9. And we see the, the singular pronoun, your, occurring over and over and over again. But if your hand or your foot trips you up, Cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye trips you up, tear it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life one-eyed than having two eyes to be cast into the Gehenna of fire. So the first makes me think about my impact on others. If they hear false doctrine from me, if they see me supporting a church by my attendance or my funds, the cheat teaches false doctrine or propping up the teaching of false doctrine. I'm bringing harm into other people's life. I'm being part of that ministry of harm. And Jesus says, don't do that. But then as I say, he holds up a mirror and says, now if you have a cause of harm in yourself, be merciless about getting rid of that since the alternative is being cast into the hell of fire. He individualizes. First, I'm warned to watch myself that I not harm others, and now I'm called to watch myself that I not harm myself. Jesus calls us to hold both of these views. These are both essential to life as citizens of Christ's kingdom. I both need to be concerned about the spiritual welfare of others, the larger picture, and I need to be responsible for the spiritual health of myself, the smaller picture. Not one or the other, but both and. So the whole body of Jesus, you see, has his care. Uh, You could just clarify this maybe and crystallize it if it isn't already crystal clear by asking, well, which does Jesus care about? Does he care about the whole body of his disciples or does he care about each individual disciple? And you would answer, That's right. (laughs) He does. He cares for both. This is the thing about being infinite. You can do both at the same time with all your attention. He cares about the whole body, the church, who he loved and gave himself for, and he cares for every sheep. You know, spoiler alert, he tells that story about having a hundred, one strays. What does he do? Goes after the stray. Cares about the whole, cares about each, and he calls us to be the same way. So my keyboard warrior at the start, who's sounding all the doctrines but doesn't give a lick about the church, is he carrying the heart of Jesus? Not at all. Not at all. No care about the body and his personal involvement in it, only a care for himself. Jesus cares for both, and he calls us as his disciples uh, to care for both. So a quick check we could give ourselves is to ask ourselves, how have we shown this concern in this church? Not, not in the abstract, but in this very church that we attend. Have we, have we joined it? Have we said, well, we want to be a part of it? We're going to identify by becoming members. Uh, do we have a ministry in it? Do we have relationships? Do we have care for the well-being of others and, and pursue that in some way? Well, this is, we see what Jesus calls us to. It's, it's not vague and misty and uh, conceptual and theoretical. It's very specific. It's very shoe-leather. It's, it's very brass tacks. So this twofold view is everything. To understand the rest of the chapter, we need to understand this, that Jesus has a concern for the whole and Jesus has a concern for each individual. So what follows is going to reflect that same twofold concern. Roman, two, Roman numeral two then, framing <coughs> Jesus' twofold mandate to us. M-A-N-D-A-T-E. Now, that's not a date you have with a man. A mandate is a command. It's an imperative. It's a, you must do this. So, Jesus' twofold mandate to us. First, we see the small frame. Each, watch out for each. That's the small frame. Jesus' mandate, each, watch out for each. Well, we see that commanded in verses 10 through 15, and in, in an earlier sermon, I made a point of connecting verse 15 to what comes before. You know, many will read verse 15 in isolation. Well, this is the first step of church discipline, but we don't really understand it until we connect it to verses 10 through 15. So I'll read it again for you. He says, see that you do not disdain. 
<clears throat> he makes it my business. He makes it my responsibility. As it were, he wraps his fingers around my collar, pulls me nice and close, and he tells me, you see to it that you do not disdain. You don't look down on. You don't think little of one of these small ones. For I say to you that their angels in the heavens continually see the face of my Father who is in the heavens. You don't care for them, but heaven cares for them. Verse 12, what does it seem like to you if some man should happen to have a hundred sheep and one of them strays? Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go and seek the straying sheep? And if it should happen that he finds it, amen, I say to you, that he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine who have not strayed. Thus, it is not the will of your Father who is in the heavens that one of these small ones perish. And if your brother sins, go reprove him between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And remember, I pointed out to you that that word perish in verse 14 could equally well be translated lost, be lost. It is not the will of your father that one of these small ones be lost. And that word in verse 15 translated that I translated gained could be translated won. You've won your brother. That's another fine translation. So how does the father find, how does he win one lost sheep? One way he does it is through you, church member, through me. We're the ones he sends out to find that straying sheep. And when we see the straying by seeing the sin, we go and try to serve that one in the father's name. We go try to call that one back to the flock and bring that one back. <clears throat> and when we do, we've won the lost one for the Father because he cares about each individual disciple. So you see, there may be a, a kajillion disciples. That's a scientific term right, that I made up. But that we may, there may be a kajillion disciples, but Jesus cares for each individual one. His Father cares for each individual one. And he makes it our business to enter into their business and care for each individual one. And I, I've said I think that uh, there are many things that can be said for uh, the appeal of large churches, but I'm afraid one of them is that you, you get easily lost in it. And you don't feel any responsibility for anybody. And nobody feels any responsibility for you. I've had people come to our church from a larger church and say that they were at that church for years and still had people occasionally introducing themselves to them as newcomers. They'd been there for years. They just didn't know each other. They had no involvement in each other. That's not, uh, that's not God's design. So he makes it our business to enter into that work of caring for each individual one. You see, in verse 10, see that you do not disdain one of these small ones. Well, you know, if you really look at it, to the infinite God, what's a big name of mankind? Who, who's a big person among mankind to an infinite God, the Creator? None of us is big people to God. We're all small ones. So we don't have any standing to look down on someone else. We're all down from where God looks at us. And that's the way we should see. Although we're all down from where he looks at it, yes, yet he cares for each one of us little microorganisms. Knows us by name, Jesus says. Calls us by name, Jesus says. <clears throat> and so we're to have that same sort of care. We're being called to this very work, to being called to the Father's care for each one. So... Uh, there are no big people to God. We don't get to discount the individual. We're to care for each individual one. And I'll share with you a little something, a little angle that I, I see anew. <clears throat> I've always looked at verse 15. If your brother sins, go reprove him between you and him alone. And I've always seen the big deal about that as being the need for privacy. And I think that that is an important point there, that you don't your first move of real concern for another brother is not to put it on the prayer list uh, or to put it on a bulletin board, you know, brother someone such as living with his girlfriend or whatever. No, no, that's not where to start. The, where, the place to start is with brother so-and-such or sister so-and-such. My apologies to anyone named so-and-such here. Uh, but I see another additional concern in that verse. Another concern is that he's saying just one is enough. Don't wait till the problem has 5, 10, 15 people going in it. 
You see one person with this issue, go to that one person. Don't think one person's not worth your time. He just told, he literally just told a story about a shepherd leaving 99 to go after the one. So you see one brother, you make it your business to go and share your concern with that one brother or that one sister. So by order of King Jesus, in this, his church, his assembly of kingdom citizens, each of us is to watch out for each other. Each of us is to care for each other. Each is the object of heaven's care and the angels of heaven, the Father's care, the Savior's care. So each should be the object of our care and our concern as well. So uh, I say again, this whole array of the five steps of church discipline is not about how to eject badons, you know. That's not what it's about. It's about how to care for, listen, it's about how to care for each and the whole at the same time. To show equal concern for each individual and for the body of which they're part. We'll see this, I trust, more and more as we go along. Uh, We see what Jesus says here reflected in the rest of the New Testament as well. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Little verse, but big lesson. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It's a lovely little verse. And we urge you, brothers... Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Whoa, slow down, Turbo. How many categories of people are in this little verse? Well, kind of four. So let's try it again. We urge you brothers, so the whole church of the Thessalonians, not just the pastors or the deacons, but all of them, First, admonish the unruly. So this is the category of those who are autoctos. They are out of order. They're they're out of line. They're not walking in line with God's word. They've gotten off uh, off the path. They've taken themselves off the path. So uh, living with a girlfriend would be an example of that, getting drunk or something like that. In some way, they've fallen into a lifestyle of not lining up with what God says to do. And what do we do with a case like that? He says to admonish. The verb nuthateo literally means to put in mind. It, 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 it's a lovely word in that it, it, it covers uh, the whole range of what counseling is. You may be admonishing, you may be warning, you may be reminding, you may be simply explaining, but whatever is needed, the person's lost his mind, so you need to put his mind back in. You need to remind him of the Word of God. Put the Word of God before him. Call him back to walking in order, in line with the Lord Jesus. But that's not the only category. There's another. Encourage the faint-hearted. Now, interesting word, oligopsikos. It means to be faint soul. It means to be small-souled. That you've just become, you've just, your heart has just shrunk. <laughs> you're, you're dispirited, you're, you're, you're saddened, you're weakened, you're discouraged. And, and you don't do the same thing with that person. He doesn't say to admonish the, the faint soul. He says to encourage. And, and the Greek verb there really means to comfort him, to console to put some wind in his sails. You don't come at him the same way as you do the first guy. He's a different sort of person, takes a different sort of approach. This would make a a good whole sermon, but I've got to move on. Help the weak. Now here's somebody in lack of strength. And so I come in and I supply the strength he lacks. I help him with what he's not able to do. So these are three categories, and the fourth being everybody. <laughs> so this applies to the other three and everyone else. Be impatient. Uh, be impatient. Great. Yeah, everybody's saying, oh, that's my verse. No, I just said it wrong. <laughs> be patient with everyone. The, the verb is be, be, have a long fuse. Take a long time to get angry with everyone. Uh, be patient with everyone. So with the unruly, with the faint-hearted, with the weak, and with everyone else, he says. But think about this. How do I know which one somebody is without knowing people? If, if my whole church experience, well, God help me if the whole experience is, is just choosing to listen to sermons in the car and that's all I choose to do, I'm able to do more, but I, but I choose to do that, well, then obviously I'm nowhere near this verse, am I? I, I? I can't even be in a position to please God by obeying his will. But I can be an occasional uh, drive-by at a church and still not know anybody. This calls me to know people, to, to have relations where I know them well enough to know 
who's out of line, who is faint-souled, who is weak, and when I'm, I'm in a position to bring them what they need. Uh, I mean, just think how awful it would be to, to you, and, and this happens, I think everybody's probably done this, unless it's just me, that you misread somebody and you come in, uh, you know, with guns blazing and you find out, oh no, totally misread that person. He's just discouraged and just sad and really needed a word of encouragement, not, not the whole of Mount Sinai being brought down on his head, you know? And so this takes knowing people. It, it takes relationships. It takes being involved in the body of Christ. And Paul just assumes that we're going to be in that position to do that, so he tells us to do it, you see? This is the small scale, and God calls us all. You say, oh, I'm too young for that. Well, I say, I guess you're too silly for that. Because if you're old enough to understand it, well, but I'm too old for that. No, you're, you're not too old. I, I fear two poles, and I've seen them. People who excuse themselves from obeying God's word because they think too young, they're too young to. That's for older people. Meanwhile, the older people are saying they're too old. They've earned their rest and privacy. That's for younger people to do. Well, another, none of this reflects the heart of somebody who loves God, is grateful for the gift of life, and intends to use every moment of life God gives in the service of God. This is for all of us. All of us are called to do this. I turn to Hebrews chapter 3. See another similar one. Chaz is getting all excited because he, he had a really good time with this in the men's study. And rightly so. It's, these are wonderful verses. Verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> Again, not to any church officer, but to the whole congregation, he says, see to it, brothers, well, just like Jesus, see to it, you make it your business, he says, that there, are not, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you, not one of you, will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." Wow, again, this can't be done without relationships. It can't be done if I'm always just hiding behind a familiar person or avoiding people. I, I need to know people, and I need to make people my concern. I need to know where they're at. I, look at this, that there not being any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. How long does it take to know somebody's heart? You say, well, the heart comes out the mouth. Yes, it does, but the, it doesn't always come out in the first words out of the mouth, does it? It takes a while to draw out a person's heart, like Proverbs says, like a deep well. So we're to know each other well enough to know when we see somebody's heart going cold and getting distant and being cold towards the things of God and fellowship with the living God, because this is a serious thing. I mean, it's, is it serious to see a lump? Is it serious to see a funny patch of skin? Yes, it is, because of what it might signal. Well... He calls us to watch for that sort of thing in each other. Any one of you, he says. Worst thing to do would be to see that and think, boy, I hope the pastor gets after that. He doesn't say the pastor in isolation. Yes, chapter 13 says that is the pastor's job, but here he makes it everybody's job. <laughs> he makes it all of our job. I look at chapter 10. Again, I think maybe people just snatch out one part of this a lot of people don't look at either part of this. But we need to look at all of verses 24 and 25. Verse 24, even the LSB doesn't quite get this right. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Well, there's no how-to there. What the Greek text literally says is let us consider one another. The object of study is not methodology, it's people. We're to consider deeply one another and then how to uh, stimulate to love and good deeds. So I make a study of the people around me, not as a busybody uh, or a nosy parker in the old expression, but as somebody who's concerned and, and been made responsible by God in part for the spiritual health of the people in my church body. Let us consider one another to, how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then he says, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, then obviously the, the purpose of going to church is not just to, to grab a sermon or just to, to hear nice music or something like that. It's also to take what we learn in the sermon and the God who we worship in the music and be of use to one another 
in helping one another, encouraging one another, provoking one another to show love and good works that glorify God and that, that serve the body. So, you see, step one is not the gotcha step. Ha! I caught you in a sin. Uh, step one is a step of concern, of reflecting the Father's heart, the shepherd's heart. That one sheep is in distress. I'm going to go see if I can help that sheep and show love to that sheep. So it, it grows out of that every member concern that each of us is called by Jesus to have. Now, letter B, let's look at the bigger picture. Each watch out for all. So the small picture is each is called to watch out for each. The bigger picture is that each is called to watch out for all. We see that commanded in verses 16 and 17. So I go and I confront my brother privately about the sin that I've seen in his life. And then he says, but if he does not listen, take along with you another one or two, in order that on the mouth of two witnesses or three, every word may be stood. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. And if even to the church does he refuse to listen, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. So, ideally, everything should have been resolved at the first step. Boom. Done. Because if we remember right, the first, the, the real first step in this chapter is I watch myself. But we all know that we can miss things in ourselves, or we should know that. If, if you don't know that, I'm telling you right now, we all miss things in ourselves. We have what the Psalms call hidden sins. All right, so someone comes up to me about one of those things that I haven't seen, and he shares this concern. My spirit should be to say, well, thank God that you cared enough for me, enough to talk to me about that. And um, pray with me, and let's, let's get going on that. And like I say, because that's the purpose. The purpose, remember, is what? Save the lost sheep. Win the lost sheep. That's the purpose. And so, if, if that is effective, well, then you're done. And praise hallelujah. I mean, that's, that's the whole thing right there. But now, he hasn't listened to the first one. He hasn't taken that to heart. So, we're not just concerned anymore about Buford and his fat little head. Again, apologies to anyone named Buford. I don't think I've ever met a Buford, so I use that as my safe name. But I'm in the South now, so it could happen. Uh, but so again, apologies if you, any relatives, uh, this is not any, any uh, resemblance to any person's living or dead is not intended and so forth. So we're not just concerned about Buford. We're concerned about the impact that Buford might have on the whole. He's got a stumbling block in himself. He may become a stumbling block to others. Do you see me? So... We need to take this further. We can't just leave this with Buford. And the point of witnesses is, yes, to get Buford's attention, but these are witnesses of the sin. These are people who know about the sin that Buford's involved in. And so here we are preparing for any possible further steps, that if we have to take it to the church, we're ready to take it to the church because God's care for the whole is as true and intense as his care for the individuals, and the individual must not be allowed to bring harm to the whole. So, bring along two witnesses in case this needs to go further, and, and Buford doesn't hear the message. Then hopefully he will take it seriously now, and that will be the end, and he'll be one. Uh, and again, we see this reflected in many, many scriptures. Look at Ephesians 4 with me. And the whole, I commend the whole chapter to you in this connection, but we're just going to look at, at parts of it. I remind you that the first three chapters of Ephesians are primarily doctrinal. They're about the great truths of God's sovereign uh, saving grace through election, predestination, redemption, sealing with the Spirit, and, and so forth, His sovereign resurrection of us to new life in Christ. And then when he turns to the more practical in chapter 4, there's that therefore that signals the shift. I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called as I sit at home and, and just study my books or whatever. No, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. None of these is a grace I can exercise by myself. These are all relationship graces, aren't they? Don't you see that? Being diligent, he says, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Now the Spirit created a unified body by the baptism with the Spirit and by all of the work of God, and I'm to be diligent to preserve that unity. That's my business. Paul makes it my business. Jesus made it my business. Uh, One body, one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father over all. And so you say Jesus gave many gifts. Yes, but they all had one purpose. Look at verse 11. The risen Christ, the ascended Christ, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. To what end? What do the pastor teachers do? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, verse 12, for the building up of the body of Christ. See, there is the role of the pastor to equip. He's a player manager, as it will, as it, as it were, and he equips everyone to serve everyone to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the full knowledge, to the measure, and one mature man. No longer children thrown around all over the place. And how do we get there? Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we're all to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what? What? Every joint supplies according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So you see, each is to contribute to the good of the whole. This big picture is God's picture. He's concerned about the health of the whole, of the whole of each individual local church of Christ. That's where we serve God in a local church. And you see that reflected even more specifically in in where we're looking, the subject of church discipline, in 1 Corinthians 5. Turn with me there, please. 1 Corinthians 5. So what's going on here? Paul probably says something he, he couldn't say today. So, 1 Corinthians 5.1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and sexual immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Now, see, that's why, could he say that today? Is there, is there any abomination that hasn't been dreamt of? Well, I'm afraid to ask the question because the world would take that as a dare, you know, and see if they can't come up with something worse. But does it, such a kind does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. And you've become puffed up and have not mourned instead so that the one who's done this deed would be removed from your midst. And so then he goes on to say that he's already judged that such a one should be removed from them, that that he should be handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit might be saved. But look, look at what he says in verse 16. Your boasting is not good. Now, how could they possibly boast? I wish I could tell you that I have no idea, but sadly I do. I can easily hear them boasting and saying about just how great the doctrine of grace is, how great, how great we are at holding a robust view of the doctrine of grace. Why, we've even got a guy here in, in good standing who's living with his, his father's wife in a sexual relationship, and he's a trustee, you know, or whatever. And you see how great we believe in grace. I can totally hear that done. I think I've seen it done. So your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, also was sacrificed. So God calls us to be pure of this. And when somebody will not accept correction or exhortation or or confrontation, then that person's simply to be put out of the body. He's not to be kept in as a, as, a, as a trophy of grace. He's to be put out. Why? Because of the effect, the effect and the impact that he can have on the whole. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So is God concerned for the individual? Yes. Is he concerned for the body? Yes. Both. And this is designed for both. I'll just read you Galatians 5, 7 through 10. Galatians 5, 7 through 10. You know the trouble there were Judaizers preaching a false uh, uh, gospel, including Mosaic works of law. And he says, you were running well. (laughs) Who hindered you, literally, who cut in on you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. 
And then he says it again. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who's disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. So they're not to tolerate this for the sake of the body. A little bit of leaven tolerated and left alone, the influence will spread. And then one more, Hebrews 12, verses 14 through 16. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord, holiness. Sing to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That also there be no sexually immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. So you see here, once again, this call to be concerned for every other member of the body, to be concerned for them. Again, not busy bodies, but to be lovers who are concerned with their spiritual good. Why? Well, we don't want anyone to fall short of the grace of God. Okay, so we care about the impact on him individually. But then what's the next thing he says? No root of bitterness causes trouble, and by it, what? Many be defiled. So the concern is for the whole of the body. This is something that you see again being walked away from by many professing evangelicals. Uh, the LGBTQ plus spectrum has been one of, uh, given somehow favored status in sin, and churches call themselves what? Welcoming churches who welcome people in this spectrum. And what are they welcoming? They're welcoming leaven. Uh, that will have an influence, and how can that not spread to other sins? If that sin is okay, then why wouldn't? Uh, how do you draw any line, ultimately, once that leaven has been... Uh, has a sin been more clearly denounced and identified in Scripture than, than that area of sin? Uh, so don't let, it, don't let it happen because of the individual and because of the impact on the whole. So then we look at the ultimate picture in verses 18 through 10. And I want to frame that by considering a couple of objections I've heard over the years, which are under the category of a false humility. That's the pose they take. They're, they're made to sound very humble, and they are just ways of getting, you know, people think they can outsmart God, and they just find very complex ways to make it okay for them to not obey God. So, uh, first one that I've heard is, well, who am I to say? I mean, I'm in no position to go talk to anybody about his sin. I've got my own troubles. I've got my own issues. Well, amen? Anyone here doesn't have his own troubles, his own issues, and his own sins? Uh, show of hands. No, I don't even want to tempt you. No, let's just stipulate, nobody here doesn't have our own issues and our own sins to deal with. Only God can judge sin, we say. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not supposed to go around convicting people of sin. These people say, I've got my own sins to worry about. So that's one kind of dodge. Another kind of dodge is, well, it's not my business. In fact, there's a, a, one little sect made a whole thing out of the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer, carried to the extent of believing in the privacy of the believer, that nobody has a right to talk to anybody else about anything in his life, that that's violating his priesthood. And besides, nobody likes a busybody, and, and uh, you know, and after all, um, I'm, I, am I my brother's keeper? Oh, oops. Who said that first? Who said, am I my brother's keeper? Was that a model of godly love, or was that a model of murderous sin? Murderous sin, yeah. That was Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? And that's the same kind of spirit, not as bald. I'm not my brother's keeper. And of course, that's quoted to make the point, well, actually, yes, you are your brother's keeper. So what would we say to those objections? Somebody thinks he's got a trump card. I don't need to do any of these things because i got my own sins. And besides, I don't, want to, I don't want to violate people's privacy. Well, to that, I would oppose Christ's authorization. Number two, authorization. Because we learn in the verses that come next that when I do this, that by the way, I remind you, Jesus has just commanded us to do. He didn't say, well, if it makes sense to you or if you think you should do this. It's a command. So when I do this, first of all, letter A, we act with the Father's backing. 
That's the point of verses 18 and 19. We'll expound that more when we get there, but I just, we've, we've looked at it. I'll bring it up again now. The point is that when I do this, I'm acting with the Father's backing. We just read a moment ago that their angels behold the, the face of their Father in heaven. But now here we see, Amen, I say to you, as many things as you bind on the earth will have been bound in heaven, and as many things as you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Moreover, I say to you, that if two of you upon earth agree concerning any matter that they may ask, it will be brought, to, it will be brought about for them from my Father who is in the heavens." So the meaning in heaven in verse 18 is the same as my father in the heavens in verse 19. We're talking about God. We're talking about the throne room of God. And so when I'm acting in accord with Jesus' directions and I'm, I'm forced to bind some sin that someone's not repented of and take it to the church that may result in excommunication, or if I loose it when that person repents of his sin, I have the backing of God. Because God told me to do this. Now, God's not like this one boss I had, uh, my second job, who I, I would do something with a customer that I was told to do. I would take some policy that I was told was the store's policy. And if the person squawked, my supervisor would come out and say, well, he's new, and then just violate store policy. Throw me under the bus. I felt kind of bad for the people who didn't squawk, you know. They didn't know that all they had to do was complain and they wouldn't be held to the same standard I was told to represent. Well, the Father's not like that. When we walk in accord with His stated concern to reclaim the lost, we can be assured of His backing, that we reflect His will, and, and that He listens to our prayers for guidance and help in this process. So, when I obey, I act under authority. I am doing what God told me to do. As if you were to say, what gives you the right to teach the Word of God? Well, that's actually what the Word of God orders me to do. I'm acting under His authority. When you and I do this, we're acting under His authority. In fact, the irony is, when I make up my fancy excuses for not doing this, that's when I'm out from under His authority. That's when I'm on my own. If I say this doesn't apply to me, well, then, then I'm all on my own because the Lord says it does, and the Father says it does. So, yes, look, those things that I said before, I've got my own issues, I've got my own sins, uh, and I don't want to butt into other people's business, that is a great reason to be humble in the way I approach people. It's not without value. It's a great reason to be humble. It's a great be reason to be hesitant and not just rush around looking for people to confront. It's a good reason to approach them humbly and say, this is what I'm seeing, you know, is, 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 am I seeing it right? Am I understanding you right? And, and not just coming in as if we're the great Lord Inquisitor. So great reasons for humility, great reasons for caution, not great reasons for disobedience. that clear? I hope so. Secondly, when we're obeying Jesus' directions, we act with the Son's blessing, verse 20. When we obey these directions, we are assured of the Father's backing, and now when we act on what Jesus says, we act with the Son's blessing. Verse 20 is exactly about that. For where two or three are gathered together in respect... Now, why does he say two or three? Because he just said, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two other witnesses. Uh, help me with that math. How many people is that when you take one or two other witnesses? That's two or three. That's why he says two or three. He's still talking about the same process. For where two or three are gathered together in respect to my own name. And what does that mean? As I explained when we looked at it before, what does it mean? You're acting in my interests. You're acting on my say-so. You're carrying out what I told you to do. And that is the winning of the straying one. Where two or three are gathered together in respect to my own name, there I am in their midst. Anticipating the end of the book. That go, make disciples of all nations, and lo, I am with you always. As you go, make disciples in my name, I'm with you, he says. As we go to try to reclaim lost string professed sheep, he says he's with us. And Paul reflects the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. If you go back and read that chapter, you'll see this. That Paul tells them, in the name of the, our Lord Jesus, when you were dissembled... Uh, let me read that again. 
in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. But do you hear that first part? In the name of our Lord Jesus, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Where did he get that idea? He got it from our verse right here. From Matthew 18, verses 18 through 20. Particularly verse 20. When we're gathered together to carry this out, he's there with us. And Paul reflects that same thing. Now, some people would say that talking to people about their sin and naming sin and calling for repentance for sin. And again, I wish I could say I hadn't seen this, but I've seen it again and again. Some people would say that doing that is, is what? It's very unchristlike. But here, Christ says, do it. And I'm simple enough to think that, well, if he says I should do it, I don't know, I guess I should do it. And that's what being Christ-like is. It's walking in Jesus' name. It's continuing in his word. It's believing him and acting on what he says to do. It's exactly Christ-like. And Christ specifically promises presence with us when we do it. It's a specific promise. I'll be with you when you do this. So, so to wrap this all up, uh, we're faithful in all those big doctrines. We're faithful on, if you want to give them the doctrinal names, Christology and theology and bibliology, homartiology, anthropology. We're biblical about all those things. But if we're not biblical about ecclesiology, about the Bible's teaching of the church, well, then we're not being faithful to God. So we need to ask ourselves, where am I on that doctrine? Do I love the church as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it that he might wash it, by the, he might cleanse it by the washing of the water of the word? Do I see its purpose as vitally important and give myself to that purpose to serve the Lord Jesus? Are we faithful or are we faithless on this central biblical truth. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our Lord Jesus' plain spoken teaching of truth. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will make personal application to our hearts to help us to show where we need to head from where we are. Thank you for your grace and your patience as we struggle to find that way. It's not always easy. It's not always simple. We're all of us different sorts of people. To some of us, this is relatively easy. To others of us, it is excruciatingly hard. But we know we can count on your grace, your long-suffering, your kindness, and your help as we strive to walk in the way of our Lord Jesus by your grace. And we thank you for that. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.